many of you have ever been a part of those, I don't know what to call them, Christmas party gift exchanges? Some people call them a white elephant gift exchange. Some of you, you know who you are, call them dirty Santa. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You go to these parties and uh, you, you have this game where you exchange these gifts and you can maybe steal one or take one. Anybody been to one of those? Anyone ever lost a friend over what is meant to be the happiest time of the year? Okay, well, if you're not familiar, the idea is you have this exchange and uh, you can take somebody else's, depending on what it is, or you can imagine that maybe what's unwrapped here, that might be worth taking. I remember we, uh, Jackie and I, we just moved to Alabama and for her, back to Alabama. And uh, I remember we were at a Christmas party where one of those exchanges was happening. And I don't remember certain gifts. I don't remember the iTunes gift card. No, no, no. You can get that in New York. And I don't remember the Starbucks gift card. Come on. You can get that in New York. No, no. What I remember that night is Jackie ending up with a field dressing kit. Oh, the big serrated blade. You know, when Jackie's just tagged that 10-point buck, and now she's got to gut that creature. What will she do? Well, now she's in luck. And I remember shaking my head thinking, oh, you know, uh, I will say the instruction sheet was most eye-opening. But funniest of all, what I'll always remember is how many folks in that group were like, man, that's a good gift. I wish I'd gotten that. Um, I want us to see that Christmas is really about the greatest gift exchange. And there's some similarities. You know, I think there's a lot of people that uh, there's a lot of suspicion when you talk about what God has come to give people at Christmas. There's a lot of, I don't know about that. You know, for a lot of people, they can't see it. The gifts that God wants to give, they're still wrapped up. And so there's a lot of people, I'm convinced, that are holding on to bitterness because they just can't trust that what God wants to give them is better. So they're holding on to selfishness because they just don't know if they can let go. They're holding on to relying on themselves. They're holding on to materialism. They're holding on to these things. All oh, this, this mourning and this darkness. There's so much that folks are holding on to because they just don't know if they can trust God that he's good. And what I want to do in this series, I'm calling it the gift exchange. I want to unwrap some of this stuff so that everybody can see God is not trying to take something from you. He's trying to get something to you. He wants to bless you. He wants to take a life that's empty and fill it up. He wants to take your emptiness and give you contentment. He wants to take your fear and give you courage. He wants to take your worry and give you peace. And ultimately, he wants to do this for the world. Jesus says, uh, in John 3, uh, he says, that the Son of Man, God did not send the Son of Man into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world through him might be saved. And this whole gift exchange, it's free. It's available to us. It cost him everything. It was his life for yours. Isaiah the prophet says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the chastisement was upon him that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. The ultimate gift exchange. So to get started in this series, let's go to uh, uh, 1 Samuel 
I'm kidding. Isaiah, Isaiah, a little inside joke for anyone who's been here in the last year. Isaiah 61, and Isaiah chapter 61. Will you meet me in Isaiah chapter 61? We'll look at the first three verses. This is a prophecy given 700 years before Jesus appears in Bethlehem. Isaiah 61. It's, uh, I want to set up a little context. It's in, a, it's in a series of chapters in the book of Isaiah that are all about the Messiah. 700 years before Jesus comes. You imagine Isaiah writing this and he'd write something under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I imagine he goes home uh, that night and talks to his wife. His wife says, what'd you write about today? He says, well, I'm not really sure, but it was good stuff. What do you mean? Well, I just, the, the, the Spirit led me to write about this this anointed one who's coming, this Messiah. Well, what'd you write about? Well, I can't really, can't really understand it. It's, in some ways, he's writing about this suffering servant. And this, this servant's going to suffer, and he's going to be pierced, he's going to be bruised. And then he's going to suddenly be alive, and he's also going to be a conquering, victorious king. And I imagine Isaiah's wife said, what do you make of that? He said, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. But it's what the Spirit of the Lord told me to write. I'm, I'm prophesying this. Is, this is what's going to happen. I'm telling you, God's going to work it out. I don't know how. And I want you to see in Isaiah, in these passages, and what we're going to see today, what, what the prophet was outlining, like a, like a mountain range, he was, he was talking about the Messiah coming. These are Messianic prophecy passages. Here's what's going to happen when Messiah comes. And so for years, I mean hundreds of years, even today, some Jewish rabbis are really confused by this because it says on the one hand, the Messiah is going to suffer. This anointed one's going to, be, going to be pierced. He's going to be bruised. There's all this stuff about how he's going, to, he's going to take the hit. And yet, there's all these passages about how he's going to be victorious and overcome. And the world is just going to be flowering and thriving under the kingly rule of Messiah. So there's these rabbis that are confused on what to do with this. Is it, is it two different messiahs? I, heard, I read one commentary who said there's going to be a, 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 a messiah bar Joseph. Uh, 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 there's going to be a messiah son of Joseph, meaning Joseph, he, he was beaten. Remember, he was sold into slavery by his brothers. And then a messiah son of David. Uh, and this is going to be the kingly anointed ruler, so that Messiah comes in these two forms, son of Joseph, son of David. Of course, Christians would take that and run with it, wouldn't we? That he was uh, uh, son of, they thought, son of Joseph, who was his stepfather, Joseph of, of Joseph and Mary. And of course, he was the true and better son of David. But I'm getting ahead of myself. The point is, a, a lot of folks misunderstood. That's why even the disciples... Even the disciples would scratch their heads when Jesus would say, because they knew he was Messiah. He was walking on water. He was feeding the 5,000. He was doing these miracles. And the, Messiahs, and, and the disciples would say, this has got to be the conquering king. And Jesus would blow their minds when he would say stuff like, we're going to Jerusalem to suffer. I'm going to be delivered up into the hands of sinful men. I'm going to be killed. They didn't understand that stuff. So their way of resolving, it's, it's all there in Isaiah. Their way of resolving the tension was to utterly ignore the suffering part. No, 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 Jesus. No, 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 you're not going to suffer. Let's go straight to the anointed kingly rule. They didn't know until after, of course, the resurrection, and Jesus explained it clearly, but they didn't know what we know on this side of history, what, what we know on this side of the cross. What we realize is that it's Jesus, Messiah, but he's coming twice. He comes first as the Lamb of God, born to save the people from their sins. He's going to suffer and die on the cross. But how many of you know he's coming again? 
And it's that second coming of Messiah that Isaiah, the prophet, compresses. And that's why when you read it, if you know that it's two comings, it all makes sense. If the disciples had thought about those two comings, it would have made sense. He's coming the second time for all who have received him to bless them and thrive. For all who've rejected, he's coming. It's going to be a day of vengeance. It's going to be a a, a day of, of, of justice. First as a ransom for sin, then as the returning king. So now with that in mind, let's look at Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Okay, so just so you know, when you see that anointed, that's, that's, where, we, that's where Messiah, the idea comes from. So when we see that, we know that whoever this person is, they're the Messiah. They're the anointed one of God. And he lays out first what Messiah is going to do at his first coming. <clears throat> to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Okay, so all that is in the first coming of the Messiah. And I mean, that's some good stuff, right? The the poor are going to have gospel good news preached to them. The brokenhearted are going to be healed up and the blind can see and the captives will be set free. Great. Then he will not... Return as the meek lamb of God, then he will come as the returning king who will set everything fully and finally to rights. And for those who have received Jesus, this coming day of the Lord at his second coming will be a day of great joy. For those who have rejected him, a day of terror. And there the verse continues. And the day of vengeance of our God. The Old Testament prophets often call this the day of the Lord. And once this vengeance is carried out, once all the enemies of God have been put down at that return. What will Messiah do when he finally makes an end of sin? Then this, y'all, this is the goal. This is either in the millennial kingdom or new heaven, new earth, or both. Here's what represents Messiah's rule, to comfort all who mourn. And isn't that true? Doesn't it say in Revelation when John looks at the end of all things, he's given this vision, he says, and, and, and he will what? He will wipe away every tear from every eye. There it is, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them, and listen to this gift exchange, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Everybody got it? Prophecy from Isaiah 700 years before Christ, predicts a Messiah who will proclaim all this good news, and he'll do it in a two-step process, in a first coming and then a second coming. And the purpose for God doing all this and sending this Messiah is specifically to deal with sin and to deal with the effects of sin. I want to go back through this passage and look closely at some key words, and let's talk about what sin does in a person's life. Uh, notice uh, good tidings to the poor. Look back in verse 1. You see that word poor. Uh, isn't it true that sin has robbed and made people poor? Now, I don't ne- mean necessarily materially poor, but isn't it true there are people who have all the money they could ever want and they're still miserable? Sin robs us of a rich life, of a full life. How do we know that? Because everybody in here knows The best things in life are not things. (laughs) The best things in life, money, 
cannot buy. And if I asked you to list quickly, what would you say are those best things in life money cannot buy? Your list might be different than mine, but I bet a lot of us would put things like love, friendship, peace of mind. How many of you know a clean conscience makes a soft pillow? Peace of mind, family, a family that still loves one another, comes together. How many of you know that's the stuff that makes life rich? And sin has robbed way too many people of those things. Made them spiritually poor. Sin takes away those best things and leaves people spiritually poor. That same verse, brokenhearted. I don't have to push too hard on this, do I? You know, sin leaves a trail of broken hearts in its wake. When a man forsakes his marriage vows and leaves his wife, isn't there a trail of broken hearts called little kids? When a person lies and there's been betrayal, trust has been betrayed, sometimes years of trust is gone in a moment, hearts broken. What about parents who are broken over a child who's wandered and strayed? Grandparents grieved over seeing grandchildren who were raised up in the church and now caught in sin. And because they're so broken, there's, no, there's nowhere really to express that breaking you don't, they don't necessarily lash out at the kid. They don't lash out at the parents. They don't lash out at the world. There's nowhere to express that. And so they internalize it. And so the thing that gets broken is their heart. Sin leaves us brokenhearted. Captive, those who are bound. Ah, we all know sin has this ability to, I think it was Augustine who said, first sin blinds, then sin binds. First it blinds, then it binds. It makes total sense. Just like a, a, a fisherman catching a, a fish baits that hook. Well, there's nothing wrong with a fish eating a worm. The worm is actually good food for the fish to eat. In the same way, Satan uses something good, something that, that, that at least has some shred of, of, of goodness to it, and, but, he, but, he, but he puts that hook inside of it. So, so that's how often Satan will tempt someone to sin. He'll take a, 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 some good thing but tempt you to get it in an illicit manner or at an at that inappropriate time or in some perverted or twisted way. Usually sin is you're trying to fulfill a good desire in a sinful way, see? And that's what happens. First Satan blinds you to that, then he binds you. It could be that you've, you've told some lie or some series of lies or you're living a lie and at first you, you thought, well, I'm in control. I can always roll this back anytime I want and now the lies turn into more lies and now it's gone on so long you don't know what would happen if you to told the truth. Your whole life would collapse. It's a web of deceit. How many folks can testify? It has a captivating, binding power. Everybody in this room, whether you personally or someone you love, can testify to the power of addiction. People, you, you turn on the news, the, the opioid crisis. I mean, you don't, you don't have to look far. You don't have to look far at all. It takes a greater and greater amount of whatever substance to reach an ever-diminishing high. And there begins again the cycle of regret, remorse, the swearing it off never again, only to have it begin all over again. And you tell yourself, it'll be different this time, but you start to lose hope, wondering, is there any hope once sin has held you captive, has you bound? Until verse three, ashes. <laughs> ashes to those whose lives 
have become ashes, total burnout. What are ashes? Aren't ashes the chemical residue that is left after fire has disintegrated? That's the key word. It has disintegrated what once was. Because of the chemical reaction known as fire, now what once was, whatever it was, reduced to ashes. There is not, in my opinion, there's not a better metaphor to describe how a person feels in disappointment after it dawns on them that their dreams cannot come true. Because of their own choices, because of the sinful choices of other people, whether it's their own fault or not, or some mix of both, after they learn their dreams cannot come true, ashes. When they learn they do not get the life they wanted. When they did not make that team. When they got passed over again for that promotion. When happily ever after ends in divorce papers. And it feels like all the work you put into that job, that team, that marriage, and now ashes. It's all about disintegration. It may not be a metaphor. Sin brings disintegration in a literal sense too. If you have walked through the pain of having to bury that loved one way too early, at the committal service, the preacher may have used these very words, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, which leads to mourning, the mourning in Zion. We see that in verse 2 and 3. Uh, sin, even sin that starts out fun and to bait the hook, eventually all joy is gone and leads to mourning. <laughs> even in hell, there's mourning. In the New Testament, Jesus describes hell as the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Can you imagine weeping, mourning? So often mourning is about regret of what might have been. This is what sin leaves in its wake. And finally, look at verse three, a spirit of heaviness. Oh, what a, what a, what a great phrase. Isn't that what sin has the power to do? Life in a fallen world, so many people, you'd say they have a spirit of heaviness. Maybe you yourself have felt that spirit of heaviness. You say, what's going on here? You're, you, you, it's more than just, I'm, I've got the blues or I'm going through a, a little season here, but that spirit, it's like a weight of heaviness. I'll never forget uh, feeling what I think was the spirit of heaviness, I think. I was on a mission trip to Mexico City, and we were in a really poor part of Mexico City in this Tepito uh, uh, district, and there uh, many uh, uh, in that area, uh, worshipped death, really. They, they worshipped Santa Muerte, Saint Death. And uh, all hope was gone, and, and long ago they'd given up on religion, and they realized uh, the real power all around them was disease and death. And so they would bring offerings to Santa Muerte. And we went as this mission team to share Christ with these people and bring hope, and we went into this temple and were watching people on their knees walk up to this horrifying uh, 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 idol and offer there all these gifts, w the worship of death, we're seeing it. And I'm telling you, I, I, it's th those, you'll either understand this or you won't, but I went in there, I felt a spirit of heaviness in that place. I don't know the way to explain it. <laughs> you don't normally feel darkness, right? You just can't see anything. I felt that darkness. I felt that spirit of heaviness. Now, maybe the way to explain the spirit of heaviness is by contrast here, you've got these worshipers, ironically, who are alive, and they're worshiping death. Contrast that spirit of heaviness if you've ever been to a funeral of a saint who loved the Lord and served Jesus. Now there, it's the exact opposite. There, the, the worshiper is dead, and yet in that funeral, of course there's mourning, of course there's sorrow, of course there's sadness, and yet in that funeral, because they died in the Lord, there's the spirit of heaviness is lifted. There's a sense of hope. 
even though there's death. So this is all heavy stuff. My point is simply, in this passage, Isaiah is saying, this is what Messiah will come to deal with. This is all very heavy stuff. And yet, that's what Christmas comes to deal with. It comes to deal with heavy stuff. So to use the analogy of a gift exchange, these are the things we're holding on to. The spirit of heaviness, the mourning, the spiritual poverty, the addiction, the broken heart. And what makes this passage so famous is it's the text that Jesus preached on for his first synagogue homecoming sermon. <laughs> Some of you know this, and I want to show you, because I'm, I'm, I'm making a bold claim here. I'm saying that this is a messianic text, 100% guaranteed. And you may push back on that. You may challenge it. You say, well, how do we know this is a messianic text? The Bible's the best commentary on the Bible. So here's what I want you to do, if possible. Keep, somehow, keep your place in Isaiah 61. We'll come right back to it. But I want to show you in Luke chapter 4, so bookmark Isaiah 61, and go to Luke chapter 4, and I want to show you where Jesus preached on this when he was invited to preach, and we'll go right back to Isaiah 61. For those of you who have your Bibles on your phone, it's no problem, just use the back button. See, you'd be good to go. All right? Luke chapter 4, and start in verse 16. And I want to show you that the Bible says this is, in fact, a messianic text. All right? A little context just to get everybody on the same page. I'm sure you know Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he didn't grow up there, right? After a brief stint of hiding out in Egypt when it was safe to return, he spent his boyhood and teenage years in Nazareth. When he was about 30 years old, he started his public ministry in a place called Capernaum. Jesus had been ministering in Capernaum for a year or so, and his fame was growing. There was rumors he could do miracles. There was rumors he was do, doing these healings. He is going to be one of, they thought, back home, they thought, this, this, this son of a carpenter, again, they thought the son of a carpenter, this young man, this Jesus we grew up with, he is going to be one of the most famous rabbis who has ever taught. Oh, man. Word gets out in a small town fast that this famous rabbi is making his homecoming trip to Nazareth. He's going to preach in his home synagogue. Verse, four, uh, verse 16, chapter 4, verse 16 of Luke. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. We understand this, right? Every small town, when that, that man, I knew that kid when he played baseball for Coleman and now he's in the big leagues. You know, what do you do? You go celebrate for him. You're cheering for him. You, you knew him when. We know this guy. They'd gone to grade school with Jesus. Some of them can't believe it, right? They, uh, most of them had a chair that'd been built by Jesus in their home. Unbelievable. A little souvenir, right? There it is. Joseph and sons and stepson. Because it wasn't really his son. He was, okay, all right, all right. And a carpenter, now this carpenter, is, and he's brought, and, and, the, and you know, best of all, this Jesus going off and being famous, he has brought fame to our little town of Nazareth. And Nazareth doesn't have the best reputation. When they found out, when they tell one of the disciples, hey, we found the Messiah, he's from Nazareth. First words out of his mouth, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? <laughs> And there was talk, you know, when you pulled into Nazareth, they didn't have much to be proud of. I think they had a little sign that said, you know, home of the double-A Judean Little League champions in 11 A.D. and 12. But there wasn't much. But there was talk in the city council. They were going to put up a sign that said, home of Je boyhood home of Jesus of Nazareth. This is a big deal. And as was his custom, 
He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Of course he did. He's not going to forsake the assembly. And he stood up to read. Makes total sense. When you had a traveling rabbi, if you had, if you had one in your town, you would absolutely invite him, stand up, they'd read the scriptures, then they'd preach. Services were not that different than today, really. They'd sing some psalms, they'd recite the Shema, there'd be some various prayers and blessings, reading from the Torah, Law of Moses, and then he would read or expound from one of the prophets. Jesus was selected, and man, you, you could, oh, you know they got there early that day. You could barely find a parking place for your chariot. Jesus is preaching, and the moment came, and uh, whew, this was anything but boring. You know, you know how uh, sometimes uh, sermons can be boring. But not this one. You could have heard a pin drop. This was electric. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. That day's reading was from Isaiah. Verse 17b, he unrolled the scroll. Now, why did he use a scroll? Because he didn't have his phone. So he he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. I don't know why this verse always strikes me. To me, it's so tender that the word of God is looking up a reference in the word of God. I mean, do you think he's like, yeah, I know right where it is. I had a hand in writing this. Anyway, I love this. When he gets to Isaiah 61.1, he finds his place. Of course, they wouldn't have been numbered, right? It just would have been the scroll of Isaiah when he found the place he was looking for. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. If you're like, this sounds familiar. Yeah, we just read it. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Okay. And, I mean, that passage goes on. And, 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 and he rolled up the scroll. And gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Could have heard a pin drop. This was, you know, most of them were used to the rabbis opening up and then beginning, you know. uh, Now Isaiah lived 800 years ago during the time of Uzziah in the southern kingdom. Everybody's looking at their watch like, how long is this going on? No, no, no. He starts out his sermon. Luke gives us the first sentence of his sermon. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What? Yep. The spirit of the Lord is upon the anointed one. Messiah's coming. He's going to preach good news to the poor. He's going to proclaim liberty to the captives. He's going to give sight to the blind and proclaim this is the year of the Lord's favor. Ta-da! I'm it. What? Who do you think you are, Jesus? What do you mean you're it? We know you. You had the runny nose in the fourth grade. What do you mean you're the the Messiah? We grew up with you. We know you. And Jesus said, yep, that's how it always is. A prophet is without honor in his own hometown. And it says wrath filled the synagogue, and they wanted to shove him off the town cliff. As in, get out of here. This is dangerous teaching. Now, I I, I remember I'm reading this going, that seems a bit of an overreaction. But is it? Is it? How would you feel if a a modern-day preacher stood up, turned to Revelation about the things that are to come, and said, you know, they're gathered around the Lamb, and they're worshiping the Lamb, and that Lamb on the throne, it's me. You'd be like, oh, that's a cult leader. You'd be filled with wrath. 
You'd say, who do you think you are? And so no wonder the, 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 the members of the synagogue are going, who do you think you are, Jesus? And that brings us right back to today. That's still a good question for you to ask. Who do you say Jesus is? Listen, he's either a liar and he's not the Messiah. He was a crook. He was a cheat. He's a liar. Have the guts to call him that if that's what you think he is. Or he was a lunatic. He was delusional. He was a madman. Have the courage to call him that if that's what you think he is. But there's no other option. If he's not the liar and he's not a lunatic, then he's the Lord. And bow down your life and offer yourself completely to him. But there's no fourth option that I can see. And if he is who he says he is, if he is, and I believe he is, Christians believe he is, then if that's true, then he's the ultimate gift exchange. I told you to hold your place in Isaiah 61. Go back there. Look carefully. What did you notice about Jesus' treatment of this text? Hmm? Jesus reads verse one, then look carefully at verse two of Isaiah 61. You got it? He reads through the, I mean, you, you can see, he said, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Check, he read that. The Lord's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Check, he said that. Bind up the broken heart, proclaim liberty to the captives, opening the prison, those are bound. Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, check, and the day of vengeance of our God. What? Almost every commentary I read points this out. Jesus stops mid-verse. <laughs> to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back. And the day of vengeance of our God. Why? Don't you see? Jesus was saying, here's all the things Messiah is going to do in his first coming. And today, I'm here. At his second coming, okay, that will be the day of vengeance of our God. And then begins the millennial kingdom and the new heaven, new earth. So right now, this is the acceptable year of the Lord. Today, it's fulfilled. What does that mean? Today is the day when you can receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. Now's the time. Listen, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus said that. And we are still, right now, living in that little comma. Aren't we? We are right now in the acceptable year of the Lord. That's why we are urgently, we're doing everything we can to get missionaries around the world and right here in Coleman to get people to realize today is the day of salvation. It's, it, this is the period of history where it is the acceptable year of the Lord. You can receive Jesus. Seek the Lord, the prophet says, while he may be found. Salvation has a lifetime guarantee, but it's a limited time offer. That comma will eventually, history will move on from it. And there will come a day of vengeance. So do not delay. Do not harden your heart. Respond to him. Seek the Lord while he may be found. It will come to an end, this period of history. But that day is not yet come. And so today, receive him. Sometimes, you know, I speak at these youth events or something, and occasionally a youth will ask me, you know, uh, if I don't come to faith in Christ, you think I'll get another opportunity? And I always say the same thing. I don't know. No one knows, but you got today. We know that. So receive him today. So in closing, what will Messiah do when he makes an end of sin? Oh, let's just enjoy this gift exchange. Let's unwrap these gifts together. Let's end with unwrapping all these gifts. To those who receive the Messiah, he promises in his coming kingdom, he will do these things fully and finally and forever, but you don't have to wait to experience this. You can experience a foretaste of that divine glory even now. 
when he says he's going to preach good news to the poor. And doesn't, didn't Jesus do that when he was here on earth? Isn't he still doing that today through his church? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Even yours is the kingdom of heaven. To everybody who thinks they're too spiritually poor to come to God, hear the good news of the gospel. That's how Jesus was. Everybody who thought they were excluded, he welcomed in. He's going to bind up the brokenhearted. Are you here this morning with a broken heart? Come to Jesus. Give your life completely to Jesus. You know, back then, their medicine, it's amazing. Their medicine wasn't real fancy, but in a lot of ways, they were on the right track in some things. And one of the ways they were on the right track, when you had a wound, they didn't necessarily have antiseptics and antibiotics and all that stuff, but they knew, good enough sense to know, you, you bind that wound as tight as you can, and you hold that thing as close as you can, trying to set that bone or somehow assist your body in healing. Can you imagine just being bound up tight as you can? Listen, you take your broken heart. Can't you see the Lord Jesus wants to bind you so close to himself? And that's the way forward in healing. That's the way to receive healing. Ask that woman in Mark 5 with the issue of blood. She was unclean for 12 years. And when Jesus had her stand up in front of everybody and called her daughter, what a gift exchange. His healing for her broken heart. He can do the same for you. Are you a captive this morning? He can still proclaim liberty to the captives. To everyone bound in the chains of addiction, he can set you free. Just ask in Mark 5, that demon-possessed man. They tried to chain him up so he wouldn't hurt himself or hurt others. But when the power of Jesus came and intercepted that man's life, oh, if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Come clean. Freedom. Beauty for ashes. One translation, a beautiful headdress, a crown. Some people's lives are just ashes. I think about that poor woman at the well in John chapter four. She was on marriage number four, and the guy she was living with, she didn't even bother marrying him because what's the point at this point? She's given up on love, and she just has a broken heart. She's just ashes, and Jesus treats her with such tenderness and offers himself living water to give beauty for the ashes of a broken heart. You know, he wants to give beauty for ashes this morning. The oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, (laughs) Didn't Jesus do that? Many times. You could point to Lazarus. My favorite is in Mark 5 when Jairus' daughter, the ruler of the synagogue, she was 12 years old and got sick and died. Jesus walks in with Peter and James and John and uh, that little girl's mama and daddy and uh, takes her by the hand. And just with a word, little girl, time to get up. (laughs) He raises that girl back from the dead. What a party they must have had in the house that night. It would have been the oil of joy in exchange for funeral mourning. How that spirit of heaviness with just a word from Jesus could be lifted. What a gift exchange. Chuck's going to come and lead us in a time of response and invitation. And the invitation is really just that. It's meant to be an invitation. I want to invite you to lay down burden and heartache and a spirit of heaviness for what Jesus has to offer you. Beauty for ashes. You know it wasn't so long ago, the, the new children's wing had been built. And, of course, it, you know, it's a beautiful entrance, I guess, on the, whatever that side of the building is. And then you got the Highway 31 side. And uh, it's just a couple months ago. And uh, there was a funeral in our church. And uh, the family said Sunday afternoon would work best. And so the office tried to work some things out and said, you know, happy to do it, of course. But um, the, there's a, pre, a pre-K, like a weekday, you know, the school was having like an open house, a big, big registration, big celebration. 
And so if you want to have the funeral, that, that, that's totally fine. You just you know in the, in the back, there's going to be this big celebration. There's a balloon arch and all this. And they said, yeah, 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 that, that's no problem at all. That's what we want. And so folks were coming in this entrance to a funeral, and folks, families were coming in this way, and there's a balloon arch, and there's a snow cone machine, and I mean, it's just clowns of celebration, you know? I don't think they're clowns, those are creepy, but, you know. Well, wouldn't you know, several folks who were heading to the funeral, of course, they came in the back. And they thought, my, my. <laughs> but not one, and not two, but many of them smiled and pointed out what should have been obvious to me, but they pointed out and they said, but you know, I knew this person. And for them, this really is a day of celebration. Honestly, for a Christian, coming in that way or that way makes total sense because if we live, we live under the Lord, and if we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. So come to Jesus. Let him make this great exchange, your grief. Lift that spirit of heaviness for his joy. And at my funeral, have a snow cone machine, will you? Spirit of heaviness, gone. There's nobody that can do that except that little boy born in a manger, born in Bethlehem. Why can he do it? Because on the cross, he took all that spirit of heaviness into himself. He took your sadness for, he became poor so that you could be spiritually rich. And the list goes on and on and on. Do you understand? It was a glad exchange because he took all of that and bore it on Calvary's cross for you and for your salvation and in your place that you might be planted like a tree of righteousness for his name's sake. Let's pray. God, grant to us the good sense to make this glad gift exchange. Grant, Lord, that anyone here with a broken heart who's feeling the effects of sin, which leaves all that destruction in its wake, might lay that down and receive what you have paid everything to offer. And thank you, Lord, that we can leave these things with you and you grant to us good gifts you died to bring us. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.